The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Trump on trial with witnesses. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, January 16th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Just as Russia interfered with the 2016 campaign against Hillary Clinton and for Donald Trump, Russia's doing it all again in 2020, this time going after Joe Biden, who is, as Hillary was, the Democratic frontrunner. The first public word of this latest sabotage came on Friday when Bloomberg News reported that U.S. intelligence and law enforcement are investigating Russian efforts to promote a false conspiracy theory about the Bidens and a Ukrainian natural gas company. But in that article, U.S. officials warned that Russia appears to be more brazen now than it was during the 2016 race with Biden as the new Clinton. In 2016, Russia hacked documents, leaked them through third parties, and followed up with a social media campaign. In 2020, Russia's doing it again. We don't yet know what's been taken, but we have learned since that Bloomberg News report that Russia has hacked into that gas company, Burisma. And this time, Trump isn't just on the campaign trail, he's in the White House, with all its resources at his fingertips. And the Trump White House has been busy looking for what Russia's been looking for. Russia, are you listening? The news of the Burisma hacking came from the Washington Post on Monday of this week. The Post reports the Russian GRU spy agency launched a phishing campaign last month that gave it access to credentials it could use to look at emails and other documents. The Russian effort began at the same time as the House impeachment inquiry over whether Trump tried to get dirt on Biden and Burisma from the Ukrainian government. An American cybersecurity company found the evidence on New Year's Eve. The head of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center tells Bloomberg News that Putin's ability to convince people of outright falsehoods is his trademark. In the U.S., he uses social media. In some good news for Putin, Facebook announced this past week it would not stop false claims in politicians' posts, including the ones politicians pay Facebook to run. And although it's made minor improvements, Facebook says it will not stop the ad targeting that politicians use to target specific voter groups using Facebook data. The week before, Facebook refused to ban all deep fake videos. The altered video that makes Nancy Pelosi look and sound drunk is still up. And Russia has proven it knows how to use social media. This is the exact Russian interference Robert Mueller warned us about when he testified for Congress. As for Hillary Clinton, she's been exonerated again. It was in his first year in office that Trump demanded a Justice Department investigation and that his frightened Attorney General Jeff Sessions launch it. The goal, of course, was to find wrongdoing by the former Secretary of State. It was then the job of the Justice Department to look into Trump's belief the FBI hadn't really investigated possible shady deals at the Clinton Foundation or whether she'd used the power of her office to profit from the selling of a company called Uranium One. The investigation has dragged on for more than two years now under Attorney General William Barr, and officials say they have found nothing worth pursuing. Among those who were just certain there was something screwy about the Uranium One deal was Trump's new, unfrightened attorney general, William Barr. As it turns out, crooked Hillary isn't. Despite years of accusations by Republicans, and most recently and most especially Donald John Trump. And that's the finding of people who knew what their boss wanted them to find. 
Trump and William Barr are off on another tangent now. Trump has Barr investigating whether the FBI was politically motivated in launching its investigation into coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia. An Inspector General's report shows no political bias in an investigation that wound up in the hands of Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Mueller did not find evidence of outright collusion, but he found a campaign willing and eager to accept foreign help in a tight political race. And he found a campaign and a presidency willing to lie about it. Lock her up. For what? Hillary Clinton has been exonerated. Again. For what that's worth. Trump's first national security advisor, meanwhile, Mike Flynn, has changed his plea to not guilty of lying to the FBI in the Mueller probe. Flynn, after cooperating with the probe at first, now says he's being prosecuted out of vindictiveness as he apparently angles for a presidential pardon from Trump. She said she'd do it when she was ready. It was a week ago today that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi started dropping hints she would soon be sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate for trial. Soon, she said last Thursday. As one who chooses her words carefully, Pelosi said, I will send them over when I'm ready. Pelosi had refused to transmit the articles until Senate Leader Mitch McConnell explained the rules for the trial so she could decide how many and which Democrats to send as prosecutors or, as they're called, managers, House impeachment managers. We're not going to do that, said McConnell, after he'd already excluded Democrats from the rulemaking process. And with that, McConnell threw his support behind a bill that would change the rules of the Senate so the impeachment charges could be dismissed without a trial if the House doesn't transmit them within 25 days of approval. McConnell had backed the wrong horse and a bill that, to his surprise, would not have passed. And under the bill, the handover deadline would have been this past Sunday. Pelosi said a dismissal would be a cover-up. Witnesses, facts, and truth, that's what they're afraid of, she said. But faced at that moment with the prospect of no trial at all, the pressure was on Pelosi to hand over the impeachment articles. And that wasn't the only pressure. A growing number of Democrats in both the House and Senate were saying it's time to cough up the articles and let the American people judge for themselves the fairness of the trial under Mitch McConnell's rules, which he has still not explained. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bennett are senators who are running for president. And under the few rules that are set by the Constitution, they have to remain in their seats for the duration of the trial, which means little or no campaigning ahead of the first primary, the Iowa caucus on February 3rd. With pressure from both Mitch McConnell and her own House Democrats to fork over the impeachment articles, Pelosi had an announcement the very next day. She announced the House would vote this week to transmit the articles to the Senate and to appoint its impeachment managers who would serve as prosecutors. The managers are led, as expected, by Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. There are five other managers as well, a diverse field including Val Demings of Florida and Sylvia Garcia of Texas, as well as Zoe Lofgren, who was in Congress for both the impeachment hearings for Richard Nixon and later for Bill Clinton. All seven managers personally walked the articles of impeachment over to the Senate yesterday evening. Today at noon, they will formally present the articles to the Senate, and at 2 p.m., Supreme Court Justice John Roberts would be sworn in to preside over the trial. After that, Roberts will swear the senators to do impartial justice. Republicans were taunting Pelosi for caving to demands that she turn over the documents and for playing political games with her delay. But there was another reason for Pelosi holding up the articles that she knew she'd eventually hand over anyway. 
First, by holding the articles, Democrats gave Americans time to see the kind of trial that McConnell plans to stage. McConnell's made it abundantly clear that he's still coordinating with the president's lawyers with plans to end the trial very quickly. Would the president be acquitted in a sham of a trial? How fair could it be without witnesses or documents? Second, the delay was the opposite of what Trump wanted, a quick trial with a quick exoneration. The waiting is the hardest part. And during the wait, new evidence drifted in. The drip, drip, drip of information is fascinating, said Oregon Democratic Congressman Earl Blumenauer. There would, within days, in fact, be more than just drips, but a flood of new damning evidence. Blumenauer was among the first to support holding back the articles, but now he says, I think not rushing it is absolutely the right thing to do. Democrats may have hurt their own cause somewhat by calling the articles urgent and then delaying for a month sending them to the Senate. But Democrats achieved something else besides letting the fairness level of McConnell's trial sink in. Their cries for witnesses in a fair trial appear to have struck a nerve in some Senate Republicans. Not hearing from former National Security Advisor John Bolton about the Ukraine affair made no sense, and everybody knew it. Not hearing from Mick Mulvaney makes no sense, and everybody knows it. A growing number of Republican senators said they agree. As one top congressional aide put it, moderate Republicans were in the impossible position of refusing to hear from key witnesses and refusing to look at new evidence, and everybody would know about it in an election year. One recent poll shows 64% of Republican voters want Trump's top aides to testify. Republicans in the Senate who opposed witnesses would be judged harshly in the moment and in the future and their refusal to hear witnesses would follow their political careers to their graves. And that's why there are now enough Republican votes to call witnesses whether Mitch McConnell wants it or not. So far, those witnesses include John Bolton and Hunter Biden, even though Biden has nothing to do with the charges against Trump and would only serve as a distraction from the matter at hand. Friday night brought a Fox News interview with Trump in which he said he would block any testimony by John Bolton using the claim of executive privilege. Bolton had said he would testify for the Senate if subpoenaed. He still might. Stay tuned. Pelosi announced the House would subpoena Bolton if the Senate doesn't. By Sunday afternoon, near the end of a weekend-long Twitter rant, Trump called on the Senate to dismiss the charges against him without a trial. The White House urged Senate Republicans to include in their rules the option of a quick dismissal of the charges. But that won't be possible now. McConnell doesn't have the votes, according to top Republicans, including Missouri's Roy Blunt. Not only has McConnell too little support to block witnesses, he has too little support to dismiss the charges. Republicans are peeling away. Over the past month, Trump has repeatedly welcomed a trial and witnesses. Suddenly, he wanted neither. Now, he wants the charges dismissed. He won't get that. Republican senators are frightened, not just by the prospect of getting slammed for blocking witnesses, but by the prospect of being slammed for not even allowing a trial to convict or exonerate the president. There's a bill afoot to make it easy to dismiss the charges, but McConnell knows it won't pass, and like Pelosi, McConnell doesn't back bills that don't pass. The die is cast. McConnell won't get his way, and neither will Trump. As Trump complained about the stigma attached to impeachment, Pelosi reminded him he is already impeached for life. 
While Mitch McConnell had not yet laid out the rules for the Senate impeachment trial of Donald John Trump, McConnell had explained the framework of the proceedings. The trial would unfold in three stages. In stage one, the House impeachment managers will state their case, and then Team Trump will present its defense. This could go on for weeks. In stage two, all senators would be allowed to submit questions in writing to Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, who presides. After the questions, we can expect a motion to dismiss the charges. Any senator can make that motion so long as they do it in writing. In stage three, senators would consider hearing from witnesses, voted on one witness at a time. And there are now at least four Republicans, and probably more, who will vote yes. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins announced she's been working with a small group of Republicans to make sure the trial has witnesses. Four would qualify as a small group. So would five or six, which are the numbers we now have. There may, in fact, be more than six. Stay tuned. Side note, if the Senate were to conduct a sham impeachment trial, it appears the Supreme Court has the power to review impeachment trials to review the fairness of a trial. This according to impeachment lawyer and author James Robinout, writing in the Washington Post. The House, meanwhile, continues its impeachment inquiry, and that inquiry got a ton of damning evidence against Trump on Monday when Lev Parnas of Lev and Igor fame in the Ukraine scandal turned over thousands of pages of documents, dozens of text messages, calendars, and some photos. Parnas is also sharing the content of his WhatsApp and from his two phones and his iPad. Parnas is facing even more serious charges on top of the ones he and Igor face for funneling foreign money into U.S. elections. Igor has a different lawyer, and he is not cooperating at this point. Lev, though, is trying to get out from under some of the charges by cooperating with prosecutors, even as he and Igor both continue to declare their innocence. And Lev says he's willing to publicly testify for the House if that will help. Why did Trump say that U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch was going to go through some things? Why was there a campaign led by Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to smear Yovanovitch? Why did Trump call her bad news? Why did a friend of hers at the State Department call her and tell her to get out of Ukraine on the next plane? We appear to have the answers now that Giuliani associate Lev Parnas has turned over this pile of evidence. We now know that a corrupt former Ukrainian prosecutor, when he was still in office, offered Lev Parnas the supposed dirt Trump wants on Biden in exchange for getting rid of Ambassador Yovanovitch. Parnas indicated Yovanovitch was under surveillance during her final days in Ukraine. The ambassador was reportedly being stalked, and the possibilities as to why she was being stalked are frightening. Yovanovitch was being stalked, possibly the target of something sinister. Was she also the target for kidnapping or murder? In one thread of messages Parnas wrote of her, She's not a simple fool, trust me, but, wrote Parnas, she's not getting away. There are also threads of messages between Parnas and a Republican congressional candidate from Connecticut who assured Lev he had Yovanovitch under surveillance both electronically and with eyes on. That candidate is Trump donor Robert F. Hyde, who wrote in one encrypted message, Wow, can't believe Trump hasn't fired this bitch. I'll get right on that. Hyde spewed that he'd been in touch with a private security team staked out near the embassy to watch and record the ambassador's every move. They will let me know when she's on the move, he wrote, adding, they're willing to help if you'd like a price.
Guess you can do anything in Ukraine with money, end quote. Parnes responded, LOL. As for Mr. Hyde, the Republican Trump donor running for Congress in Connecticut, he also has no comment. Sorry, he told a reporter, I can't talk right now. It was Robert Hyde who told Parnas that a private security firm had Yovanovitch under surveillance, but Parnas says Hyde was consistently drunk and that he never took Hyde seriously, brushing him off with LOLs. But it led Trump to claim that Yovanovitch was going to go through some things. And it made a friend of the ambassador warn her to get on the next plane home. They took it seriously, which may have been the point. In an interview with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, Parnas says he wants to apologize to Ms. Yovanovitch. Before anything ominous could happen, Marie Yovanovitch was pulled from her post as U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and told by a friend at the State Department to get on that next plane. Career nonpartisan ambassador Marie Yovanovitch suddenly appears even more courageous than when she defied a White House order and testified for the impeachment inquiry. Now we know what she meant when she said she felt threatened. She, her lawyers, and others want all of this investigated. This morning, the Ukrainian government announced an official criminal investigation into whether Trump associates surveilled Marie Yovanovitch. Parnas also told Maddow, quote, President Trump knew exactly what was going on. He was aware of all my movements. I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Rudy Giuliani or the president. Parnas has also implicated Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Attorney General Bill Barr, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, and Republican Congressman Devin Nunes as being involved in the Ukraine scandal and stressed that John Bolton knows about all of this and should be called as a witness in Trump's impeachment trial. Lev Parnas says Trump was never interested in Ukraine corruption, just the Bidens, and that it was, quote, all about 2020. And now we know Lev Parnas has also turned over to House investigators his voicemails. Lordy, there are tapes. Like Lev Parnas, Hyde has been photographed with Donald John Trump. The chairman of the Connecticut Republican Party has now asked Hyde to end his campaign for Congress. At one point, that corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor wanted to come to the U.S. to make his claims about Biden, but he needed the U.S. government to lift the ban on his entering the country. In Lev's treasure trove of messages, we see Rudy Giuliani telling Parnas he had involved a person he called number one in trying to get that ban lifted. Number one to Giuliani, of course, would be the president. Because there's also a letter Giuliani had written to the president of Ukraine asking for a meeting since, as Giuliani put it, he was acting, quote, in the capacity as personal counsel to President Trump and with his knowledge and consent, end quote. A meeting never happened because Rudy came to believe that Volodymyr Zelensky was in with the Democrats and other enemies of the U.S., but the new Lev Parnas documents indicate Trump knew about the scheme that was underway at the time and that Trump endorsed it. And lest there be any doubt about what the scheme was, we can quote from a handwritten note on some hotel stationery from Lev's room at the Ritz-Carlton in Vienna. Get Zelensky to announce that the Biden case will be investigated, he wrote. The very thing for which Trump has already been impeached. Neither the White House nor Giuliani will comment, of course. What remains to be seen is whether this tale of intrigue and skullduggery will make it into the evidence pile at Trump's impeachment trial. 
That's why House Democrats say there cannot be a full and fair trial without the documents President Trump is refusing to provide. And this concludes the halftime show in the impeachment of Donald John Trump. No one can know for certain how this turns out, so be wary of those who say they do. There are still off-ramps. The Republican Senate could vote on the merits of the charges, and Trump could be acquitted on just 34 votes since it takes a two-thirds majority to remove him from office. But that would be like dismissing the charges outright, something that fewer and fewer Republicans are willing to do. So for the moment, both Trump and McConnell are in a box, destined against their wills to have a trial and witnesses. The trial of Donald John Trump officially begins today, but the first real action is set for Tuesday, with very limited press coverage. You may recall mention here last week of Utah Senator Mike Lee's outrage over a White House briefing on the Trump-ordered assassination of Iran's top general. You may recall the Republican senator saying it was the worst White House military briefing he'd ever witnessed in his nine years in the Senate. Well, he went on to elaborate. We learned that administration officials had been asked in that briefing about a hypothetical to get a read on where the White House stands on the president's powers to engage in acts of war without consulting Congress. White House officials refused to answer that question for the senators. Specifically, the White House had been asked if President Trump believes he has the authority to also kill Iran's supreme leader without congressional approval. They refused to answer the question. The Trump White House, says Lee, refused to say if there was even a point at which the president might ask Congress for authorization to use military force. Again, no answer. Lee says the senators were told in that briefing to not debate Trump's Iran actions in public, as Lee put it, like good boys and girls. They were told that to reveal the intelligence that supposedly prompted Soleimani's assassination would help Iran and hurt the morale of American troops. The president who was keeping secret the real reason for his order to kill Qasem Soleimani, was also now trying to minimize the hubbub about it, especially to quiet any dissenters. Congressional Republicans were reminded by the White House that by voting for the War Powers Resolution, they were undermining the president in the middle of a conflict with the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. Well, it now appears that a majority of the Senate will disregard that reminder. Trump had tweeted that all House Republicans should vote against the resolution, or as he called it, crazy Nancy Pelosi's war powers resolution. It appears a majority of the Senate will ignore Trump's request. All but a few Republicans did vote against the amendment, except, for example, staunch Trump defender Matt Goetz of Florida, who said, if our service members have the courage to fight and die in these wars, Congress ought to have the courage to vote for or against them. Loyalty to the president, though, remains vital to the political careers of most Senate Republicans, and those careers, as outlined earlier, are already precarious. Still, the House voted overwhelmingly to try to curb Trump's war-making with Iran, and it now appears the Senate will do the same. And although it was presumed the Republican-held Senate would kill the bill, it now appears there are enough votes to pass new restrictions on Trump's war-making powers with Iran, because here again, all that was needed was four Republican votes. The White House yesterday abruptly canceled three congressional briefings on the Iran crisis, including one about security at our embassies. You may also recall 
that Iran had struck back after Soleimani's killing, firing missiles at two military bases in Iraq where Americans and Iraqis were serving. There were no casualties. We did not intend to kill, said Iran's military commander. To everyone's relief, Trump did not retaliate for that strike militarily. He did, however, slap Iran with even more sanctions on Friday, targeting Iran's metal industry and some of its top remaining military and national security officials. That same day, we learned, though, that the U.S., under Trump's orders, also tried to kill a second Iranian military official that same day, the day it killed Soleimani. The Trump administration has now placed over a 1,000 sanctions on Iran, so many the U.S. is now running out of key Iranians to sanction. You may recall also mentioned here last week of Iranians taking to the streets to protest their own government, protests that stopped when Iranians unified briefly in the wake of an American act of war. You may recall Iranians during that brief time shouting death to America, which doesn't mean what you think. It isn't literal. Iranians shout death to, much like Americans hurl the F word, as you will soon understand. What a difference a week makes. Iranians are now in the streets protesting their own leadership after learning the Iranian military had accidentally shot down a Ukrainian jetliner, taking all 176 people on board to a nightmarish death. It was, of course, on Thursday that U.S. intelligence reported it believed Iran had shot down that airliner with Russian-made surface-to-air missiles. It appeared to be a mistake, according to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whose country lost 57 souls on that plane. British and U.S. officials agreed it was probably a mistake. In war, it's difficult to distinguish between military and civilian aircraft. Iran was on high alert at that time after its attack on those Iraqi military bases, not knowing for certain how the U.S. under Trump would respond. At first, Iran denied it was responsible for the shootdown, claiming there was a mechanical issue with the Boeing 737, not a missile. Iran was reluctant to allow certain outside investigators. It said it would keep in its possession the black boxes from the plane. That runs counter to international protocols which say the U.S. has a right to take part in that probe because the jet was built and certified here in the U.S. And then on Saturday, Iran confessed that it had accidentally shot down the passenger jet. Iran confessed. It happens. It happened four times in recent history, and two of those are on Iran. This time, Iran blamed human error and said it, quote, deeply regrets this disastrous mistake. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani offered condolences to the victims' families and said investigations were underway. He offered profound regrets and apologies to the families. Iran's aerospace commander, on hearing the news, said, I wished I was dead. He's publicly asking for forgiveness. The head of the Revolutionary Guard accused the government of lying to the people, which he called a tragedy nearly as great as the crash itself, adding, We are all ashamed. He claimed the person who pushed the button had just seconds to make a decision but new video reveals the plane was hit by two separate missiles fired 30 seconds apart. The Iranian military said the person responsible would face legal consequences and the steps would be taken to assure this doesn't happen again. In fact, there has been at least one arrest. Iran invited the U.S. to take part in the investigation. But Iran's foreign minister said some of the blame goes to the U.S., specifically its president, for escalating tensions in an exchange of fire that horrifically killed 176 innocent people. But why had Iran allowed the plane to take off in the midst of such a tense military situation? 
News of the shootdown angered Iranians who started tweeting their anger toward the Iranian military. The Iranian people took to the streets once again, again protesting against their own government, this time demanding transparency and justice concerning the shootdown. They took to the streets to shout, resign, resign, resign at their military leaders. They shouted, death to the Ayatollah, instead of death to America. The supreme leader is a murderer, they chanted. The crash had tarnished the great victory they thought Iran had achieved with its strikes on those military bases in Iraq. The win now had a very dark asterisk. Citizens started tearing down posters the government had put up honoring the late General Soleimani. The only female Iranian athlete to win an Olympic medal announced she had defected. Students who were expected to walk on American and Iraqi flags that had been painted onto sidewalks refused to step on them. This is the same nation that's also burned American flags, but this week they were respecting them, refusing to even walk on them, much less burn them. The students shouted pro-American slogans as they marched in protest against their own government. And this time, it wasn't just the usual protesters. Conservative Iraqis joined the usual protesters in a breathtaking public display. Even hardline newspapers called for the military leaders' resignations. This time, the protests were in a dozen cities, not just in the capital of Tehran. In Tehran, police used tear gas, rubber bullets, and even live ammo to disperse the crowd. As the weekend came to a close, multiple people had been wounded in that live fire. They were shot in the back. Trump tweeted his encouragement to the Iranian protesters in their predominant native language, Farsi. The story kept changing about why the U.S. assassinated a general from a sovereign country. And then came the embassy lie. The original story of an eminent attack had already been proven untrue and had already begun to shift. NBC News reported Monday that Trump had authorized the killing of Soleimani seven months ago in the event that Iran's aggression caused an American death, which disproves the eminent threat explanation. The embassy lie first came out of his mouth last Friday morning that General Soleimani had to be killed because he was planning an attack on our embassy in Baghdad. But that night, he told Fox News it was really four, four embassies. That was the reason the general was killed. Four is a very specific detail. Unfortunately, none of it is true. Trump hadn't really sold it, using the words, I believe it would probably be four. The embassy in Baghdad says it got no heads up about an eminent attack. Other embassies in the region say they weren't told about it either. The State Department heard nothing about this, even as it warned every U.S. embassy on the planet to be on alert. So the people supposedly about to be bombed had not been told about this very specific threat, either because of a potentially deadly bureaucratic mistake or because there never was any threat. Members of Congress who attended that worst briefing ever at the White House last week say the four embassy thing never came up, either because it was being kept secret or because there was never any threat. At first, no one in the administration would contradict the president. One said, yeah, there might have been a plot to bomb the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, but it's in a safe neighborhood and it's heavily fortified, so... And that was when Defense Secretary Mark Esper stepped up to say he had seen no evidence of planned attacks on four embassies. So, so it was time once again to shift the public justification for Suleimani's killing.
Forget about the eminent threat. Forget the four embassies. We've got a new one from Trump's Secretary of State and his Attorney General. This, said Mike Pompeo and William Barr, is the real reason Soleimani had to be killed, in case anybody's still listening. Killing the Iranian general was, they explained, part of a bigger strategy. The Trump administration's dedication to deterrence, the deterrence of terrorist attacks in the region. What they cannot say now, after all these various explanations of Soleimani's killing, is trust us. It doesn't really matter because of his horrible past, tweeted Trump about the shifting justifications. doesn't really matter. So let history reflect the Trump administration killed the second highest ranking government official of a foreign country for reasons that don't really matter. A USA Today Ipsos poll found that 52% of us found the killing reckless, while only 34% did not. The Trump campaign was hoping the killing of Soleimani would boost the president's popularity. It doesn't appear to have. The Wall Street Journal reported that Trump had told associates he was under pressure to deal with Soleimani from Republican senators he views as important supporters in his upcoming impeachment trial. The New York Times reported the same. As many suspected, Trump had risked this nation at war as he worried about impeachment. And that is how it all ties together. The United States Secret Service was created in 1865 to go after counterfeiters. It evolved into the agency that also protects the president, his family, and other high-ranking officials. After 9-11, the Secret Service was moved from the Treasury Department to the Department of Homeland Security as the nation's security forces were gathered under one umbrella. Trump Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin wants it back. It's one way Mnuchin is trying to stall while Congress tries to get its hands on the Secret Service expense reports for the money spent on trips by Trump and his family. Mnuchin's hoping to put off giving that answer until after the 2020 election, according to the Washington Post, Carol Lenig and David Farenthold. Mnuchin's been working with top Republican senators to move the Secret Service back to Treasury, where Mnuchin would likely put a lid on the answer to Congress's question. Since taking office, Trump has visited his own properties more than 50 times. We know the government spent $96 million on the Obamas over eight years, but we also know Trump golfs more than twice as often and probably broke that $96 million mark during his first year in office compared to Obama's eight years. Don Jr. and Eric Trump have made trips to Ireland, Scotland, Dubai, Uruguay, and India. The cost is a mystery, and that information's gotten harder to get since Trump is staying at his own properties. The congressional quest for answers continues. Most of the top 400 companies in the U.S. paid an average federal tax rate last year of about 11%. The old rate was officially 35%. The Trump tax law lowered the actual rate to 21%, but that's before deductions and other tax breaks and, of course, loopholes. In fact, under the Trump tax law, there are new tax breaks and loopholes. Those things cut the actual rate to 11.3% for corporations. Meanwhile, the federal deficit, thanks to the income cut, hit nearly a trillion dollars last year, exponentially higher than before he took office. 91 Fortune 500 companies paid no federal tax in 2019, including Amazon, 
which instead got a $129 million refund to add to its $11 billion in profits. Activision Blizzard, a video game maker, enjoyed a tax rate of negative 54%. That rebated the company nearly $250 million to add to its nearly $450 million in profits. And although the corporate tax cuts get credit for stimulating job growth and a low unemployment rate, Activision Blizzard celebrated its windfall by firing 800 people as the year began. Wages have crept up slightly, but have not kept up with the rise in corporate profits. Monday of this week, as you may have gathered by now, was a busy news day. That was also the day we learned Trump is planning to divert an additional $7 billion in military funding to build his wall. That $7.2 billion is five times the amount of money Congress authorized him to spend in this year's budget. Once again, Trump is pulling the money from much-needed military construction projects, some of them crucial to the health and safety of our service members and their families, schools, housing, and workplaces. And he's taking a billion dollars more than when he robbed that same budget last year. Money will again be taken from the Pentagon's budget for its counter-narcotics effort. This extra $7 billion, says the White House, will be used to finish about 885 miles of new fencing by spring 2022. That number is also new. The original plan was for 509 miles of fencing, not 885. Now he wants an extra 376 miles of wall. The projected cost of the fence is now $18.5 billion, and Mexico still isn't paying for any of it. Just over 100 miles of new barriers have been erected so far. The administration hopes it'll be 450 miles by Election Day. Congress has gotten hold of more than 100 pages of internal documents from aircraft maker Boeing. The messages feature Boeing employees mocking federal rules, talking about tricking government regulators, and joking about potential flaws in the 737 MAX during its development. One of the messages read, I still haven't been forgiven by God for the covering up I did last year, referring to his interactions with regulators from the FAA. Even before the first of two deadly MAX crashes, one pilot wrote to a colleague, Would you put your family on a MAX simulator-trained aircraft? I wouldn't. One employee wrote, this airplane is designed by clowns who are in turn supervised by monkeys. The messages about federal aviation officials were even less flattering. After a presentation the company made to the agency, one Boeing employee concluded it was too complicated for the feds to understand, calling it, quote, like dogs watching TV. The 737 MAX Boeing counted on for its future profits, killed 346 people, and remains grounded. Boeing also recently fumbled a crucial test in the space race it's losing to SpaceX. The craft it's designing to get NASA astronauts into space failed to achieve orbit this past week. The Boeing craft's upcoming mission to the International Space Station has been canceled. We're just warming up, remembering a rocker, Joker, 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 and the Bad Wig Bandit in the final segment after this. Nearly all the words come from me, but the data comes from a variety of reliable sources that rightly charge for their services. There are computer expenses, software, server fees, websites, and high-speed internet, plus the care and feeding of professional broadcast quality equipment to make the show listenable. In short, this newscast is free to you, but not free to make. 
If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. Some very kind folks opt to make it a monthly payment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up or ad blockers to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. 2019 was this planet's second warmest year of the past decade. The decade just ended was the warmest decade in recorded history. Heat has been on the rise since the Industrial Age with a spike around World War II and a sharp, relentless climb since the 1970s. It appears to be an even sharper upward climb just over the past few years. We're just warming up. Stay tuned. We learned this week that we have lost a billion animals to Australia's brush fires, and that because of that, some species may have become extinct. Some of Australia's birds, mammals, and reptiles are found nowhere else on the planet. At least one species, a mouse-like creature called a dunnart, may already be lost. Amphibians, trees, plants, fungi, insects, and microorganisms unique to Australia, lost. And those who have not yet died likely will, with their food and habitats burned away. And while koalas and kangaroos have captured the world's attention during the fires, their species are both expected to survive. We also learned this week of the Trump administration's plans to cripple the environmental protection rules signed into law in 1970. The National Environmental Policy Act has, for the past half century, required studies of the environmental impacts of major energy and infrastructure projects using federal funding. Under the law, citizens have the right to hear the proposals and to provide input about them. Public comments are part of the law. The Trump administration wants to do away with many of the environmental studies to let contractors do their own and to do away with the public comments. Conflicts of interest would become less of an issue. The fossil fuel industry would no longer have to look at the long-term effects of mining coal or drilling for oil and gas. The last thing construction needs is people who care about the environment slowing it down. The Guardian reports that a group of environmental activists here in the U.S. are listed in Homeland Security documents as extremists and alongside violent white nationalists and mass killers. These activists have engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience aimed at the oil industry. They're known as the valve turners because they closed the valves on oil pipelines, pipelines that carried Canadian tar sand to four states in the U.S. The group notified the energy company in advance of its protest, posted videos of the protest online, and allowed themselves to be peacefully arrested. In Homeland Security documents, the five protesters are listed as suspected environmental rights extremists. When 800 activists were arrested at the height of the North Dakota pipeline protest, and although they were tried on state charges, the FBI and Homeland Security kept surveillance. In court, some of them have used the necessity defense to argue that some criminal acts are justified if they help prevent future harm. The disregard for expertise is worse than it's ever been, says a climate change lawyer at Columbia University. In the past three years, scientists have been chased out of their government jobs. Hundreds of government scientists have quit in disgust, seeing their important work thrown out or disregarded. 
Research has been shut down and government scientists ordered not to speak publicly about their findings from climate change to public health. The Environmental Protection Agency is down to its smallest staff in decades. One ex-employee says it felt as though the agency were now being run by the fossil fuel industry. Experts in the Food and Drug Administration have resigned after their conclusions about certain drugs were overturned. Weather scientists quit when Trump used a laundry marker to change one of their forecast maps to falsely argue that Hurricane Dorian was a threat to Alabama. In Kansas City, the sudden relocation of two agriculture agencies that fund crop science and study the economics of farming has caused an exodus of the staff, putting off hundreds of millions of dollars worth of research. The thinning of scientific capacity in government will take a long time to get back, says the former top climate policy guru at the Interior Department. He quit two years ago to join the environmental group, the Union of Concerned Scientists. NASA has discovered a new planet that revolves around two stars. Well, it wasn't actually NASA. It was a 17-year-old intern at NASA, and it was only his third day on the job. Last spring, Wolf Cookier of Scarsdale, New York, took off for Greenbelt, Maryland to the Goddard Space Flight Center. It was the summer between his junior and senior years of high school, and after obviously slacking for the first two days of his internship, Wolf found a planet, a planet that is seven times bigger than Earth, a planet with two suns, one of them a bit bigger than ours, the other two-thirds smaller than ours. This planet is now officially named TOI-1338b, although Wolf's brother thinks it ought to be called Wolftopia. And now, Wolf is back home, setting his sights on college, maybe Princeton or Stanford or MIT. With finding a planet in three days under his belt, he'll probably get into a good school, just as soon as he finishes high school and figures out what he's going to do next summer. The grown-ups, meanwhile, are making cookies. The first batch of cookies baked in space has returned to Earth using Doubletree's cookie dough. Each of the five cookies were baked one at a time to see what baking at that altitude was like. The results will be announced soon. SpaceX brought the five cookies home Tuesday unbroken. The pharmaceutical industry was cranking out even more opioids than we believed. A lot more. New federal drug data shows that more than 100 billion doses of oxycodone and hydrocodone were shipped throughout the country in just a nine-year period from 2006 to 2014. That's 25% more than we thought. The previous figure, 76 billion pills, was based on seven years of data from 2006 to 2012. Now, the totals from 2013 and 2014 have been added. One-fourth of the total sold in just two years. The largest number of pills went to West Virginia, which also had the highest prescription opioid death rate. Kentucky was second, South Carolina third. The investigation of our opioid death epidemic continues. Alcohol deaths, meanwhile, have doubled in the past 20 years. A new study shows the biggest increase in alcohol deaths among women and middle-aged adults. Nearly 36,000 people died from alcohol-related deaths in 1999. By 2019, that number had doubled, 72,000. There were more alcohol deaths that year than from illegal drug use, including heroin and fentanyl, which are classified as crises. Alcohol is not. Not all alcohol deaths get recorded as such, so experts consider the official numbers to be lower than what's actually out there. 
Some 10 million Americans currently have the flu. Nearly 5,000 people have died this year, accounting for nearly 6% of all U.S. deaths in the week that ended January 4th. This year's strain seems to particularly target children. 32 children have died from the flu in the U.S. this year. Nearly 90,000 people have been hospitalized by it. And the CDC says the worst may be yet to come. To the surprise of many, Joker got the most nominations for this year's Oscars. Joaquin Phoenix seems destined to win Best Actor. At three and a half hours, The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and 1917 each got ten nominations. My favorite, Jojo Rabbit, got six, along with Parasite, Marriage Story, and Little Women. Among the movies snubbed, despite effusive praise, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler and Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez. The Oscars will be presented on Sunday, February 9th on ABC. A precursor to the Oscars, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, will be presented this Sunday on TBS and TNT. 1917 is this week's top movie at the theaters, opening with $37 million after winning Best Drama at last week's Golden Globes. The only other award-nominated films this week are Just Mercy with Jamie Foxx. It's in fourth place and Little Women in sixth. The Washington Post reports that some people have been going to theaters to see the movie Cats while, quote, high out of their minds. The movie is considered weird enough by sober standards. But the Post says it heard from hundreds of people who saw cats while high on weed, psilocybin mushrooms, LSD, and other mind-altering substances. One called it, quote, the most incredible cinematic experience of my life. Another called it the most terrifying experience of my life. Yet another called it a special kind of evil. Still another wrote, vomited four times, but ultimately understood the film on a deep level. I'm guessing mushrooms. One plans to now write her doctoral thesis about it, saying, I had a realization partway through that I am the only person in the world who understands cats. One altered moviegoer had a panic attack after Taylor Swift sang McCavity the Mystery Cat. There's talk that Cats may be the next Rocky Horror Picture Show. Elizabeth Wurzel was a pioneer leading a new generation of authors willing to write about their deepest, darkest thoughts. The lawyer and author of Prozac Nation, Young and Depressed in America, has died at age 52 after a five-year battle with breast cancer. She once wrote, I might have died very young or done very little. Instead, I made a career out of my emotions. The drummer and brilliant lyricist for the band Rush died this week from a form of brain cancer. At one point, Neil Peart abandoned his dream of being in a rock band and went to work for his dad's farm equipment store. That didn't work out, but the rock thing did. And among his biggest enthusiasts and more qualified to report on Neil than I... Here's Bob Seska. Neil Peart, the world-renowned drummer with the multi-platinum-selling Canadian rock band Rush, died on January 7th from an aggressive form of brain cancer. Raised near Hamilton, Ontario, Neil Peart, not Pert, will eternally reside in the pantheon of rock's greatest drummers, possessing a complex, creative, and relentlessly thoughtful approach to the instrument that not surprisingly also extended to his wonderfully insightful and erudite lyrics for all of Rush's music, not to mention his side projects and his personal perfectionist work ethic. In addition to Rush's 45-year history as a band, more than 18 studio albums recorded with bassist and singer Geddy Lee and guitarist Alex Lifeson, the guys from work, as Neil called them, he published an inspiring, entertaining, and occasionally heartbreaking series of travelogue books, including Masked Rider, 
about a harrowing and enlightening bicycle tour of West Africa. In 2014, Rush was inducted, or indicted, as Neil joked during the ceremony, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And after finally being recognized and respected by mainstream music critics, Neil and the guys from work retired as a group. But unlike so many other recording artists, they did so on their own terms, at the artistic and commercial vanguard of their careers. A private and sensitive man, Neil shied away from the trappings and attention commensurate with being a touring musician. Rather than succumbing to the temptations of celebrity, he voraciously distracted his giant brain with anonymously nourishing pastimes born of a question he'd routinely ask himself, what's the most excellent thing I can do today? On a personal note, if I may, Neil Peart and Rush have been the soundtrack to my life and the lives of so many others, an unwavering loyal companion, recharging my spirit and ever-present in my stereo speakers. His books inspired me to take up bike riding, and bike riding inspired me to quit smoking in 2007. So, in this regard, you could say Neil Peart saved my life. While discussing his passions, Neil preferred to use the word enthusiast rather than the more vulgar word fan. He'd often explain during interviews how enthusiast translates literally to touched by the gods. As a Rush enthusiast until the end, and especially as a great admirer of all things Neil Peart, I'm grateful to have been touched by the gods. Neil Peart was 67 years old. Bob has been away for much of this week, back just in time for that report. His political commentary returns here next week. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com on his Patreon page and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. They had tried three other screenwriters for the movie The Graduate, but the fourth, Buck Henry, got the job. He's also very funny on screen. His last role was as Liz Lemon's misbehaving father on the sitcom 30 Rock. In between, he co-created and wrote the hit TV series Get Smart, a spoof on all the spy shows that were on TV at the time. He also made regular talk show appearances, posing as an activist fighting to put clothing on all animals. A nude horse is a rude horse, he liked to say. Buck Henry has left us at age 89. Also leaving us this week, college humor. Not the genre, just the group of some of the funniest people on the Internet. It began as a joke website launched by two college freshmen in 1999. It turned into a comedy sketch troupe and drew more than 100 million page views a month at one point. It also created the writers, actors, and comics who've brought us HBO's Girls, Silicon Valley, and the present-day Saturday Night Live. One of the college humor writers who now writes for SNL once said of the comedy group, the kid you'd like to kick out of the house, an adult son who say rises for Pop-Tarts at the crack of noon and wails on Guitar Hero at three, his is the spare time we're after. After more than 20 years, the group known as College Humor is shutting down, putting more than 100 aspiring comedians and writers out of work. Passings and passages. Adam Tussauds Wax Museum in London has removed the figures of Meghan and Harry from the royal family display. They were gone within 24 hours of the announcement that Prince Harry and wife Meghan would be stepping back from their roles as senior royals and moving, at least part-time, to Canada. The removal of the wax figures in Britain, or as we call it around here, wax it. Briny Breezes 
is a 43-acre town on the waterfront just a dozen miles south of Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort. Briny Breezes is an old Florida town on prime real estate between the Intercoastal Highway and the Atlantic Ocean. It's a safe and secure barrier island, meaning it's only accessible by water taxi. As a real estate wheeler-dealer, Trump was sniffing around Briny Breezes some 10 years ago. There were talks, but the deal at the time fell through. Now, it's being proposed as a location for Trump's presidential library, should there ever be one. There's increasing talk of selling it to Trump for $1 billion. Oh, one other thing about Briny Breezes, Florida. It's a trailer park. It smells like skunk in Bessemer, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, or the UP as locals call it. Michigan's 2018 marijuana law cleared the way for homegrown, and the smell of the buds has turned neighbor against neighbor in this town of fewer than 2,000 people. The city council has voted to buy a nasal ranger, a device that can measure the intensity of an aroma. The $3,500 price tag includes training in the use of the nasal ranger. Quoting a city council member, we're treading very softly in this area, adding people have a right to grow marijuana in their house, but everyone needs to be considerate of their neighbors so the odor isn't affecting their enjoyment of the outdoors. She also says the city of Bessemer stinks, but that may be in the nose of the beholder. We call this one Toddler in a Teapot. In China, a little boy was playing with a tea kettle and got his head stuck inside. Hunan Province firefighters spent a half hour cutting through the metal to free the toddler from the teapot. A teapot would be a better headwear choice than the wigs being worn by a bank robber in the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina. The FBI calls her the bad wig bandit. The suspect has worn a different wig at each appearance, from the BB&T in Huntersville to the New Horizon Bank in Belmont and a Wells Fargo in Gastonia. Police are asking the public to be on the lookout for a person wearing a bad wig. But shouldn't we always be? Two mid-40s men in Mississippi have been arrested for trying to scam the state lottery out of $100,000 by gluing the winning numbers onto a lottery ticket. Next story. Las Vegas firefighters uncovered an illegal gas station operating out of a guy's house. The man had two yellow tanks inside his walled-off yard. Each tank had a gas pump nozzle on the end of the hose that was long enough to reach from the yard to the street where customers could gas and go. This is not an isolated case. Officials say some stolen credit card information is being used to buy gas to be stored in backyard tanks. What could possibly go wrong? Also, they don't do oil changes. From our So This Is Love department, in Kentucky, 47-year-old Ray Pace called police to report a stolen laptop. By the time police arrived, he was good and drunk and asked them to take him to jail. He even shoved the officer to try to make it happen, but the officer kept his cool. It wasn't until Ray pulled out a bag of meth and heroin that the officer finally agreed to arrest him. As Ray explained it to the cop, he was worried about his girlfriend who was already serving time. Ray said he needed to be jailed with her so she would not be stressed. Doubtful they'll see each other, but someday she will likely know of this grand, romantic, stupid gesture. Because love? And finally, it didn't happen in New York or L.A. or even Florida. It happened in Pine Knot, Kentucky, 
just south of the Daniel Boone National Forest and just north of the Tennessee border. It was early morning on Thursday of last week that motorists saw the sign along Highway 92. The electronic sign had been hacked to save drivers the trouble of having to check their phones for sext messages. The electronic sign on 92 in Pine Knot, Kentucky read simply, Send Nudes. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.